Hey everyone, welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 69. Today we're going to be spending some time in the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, you really have a lot of themes that are traced out, but one of those that I think is really important is as that of a pilgrim or a traveler on his way to the heavenly city. You really see that explained by John Bunyan in his classic Pilgrim's Progress. Well, at my church, we've recently started going through the Pilgrim Songs, or another way to describe them is the Songs of Ascent. That's in Psalm number 120 all the way through 134. Today, I wanted to share with you Psalm 124 from that series. Now, Psalm 124 is a beautiful expression of us and them. What is interesting about this psalm is that the way it describes us and them is not as people who are better than others, but as people who have been saved and who should be very humble because of it. So this psalm is somewhat of a lesson in humility, and I do hope that you are encouraged and also challenged to take seriously the charge for us as Christians to reflect on what it truly means that God has stepped in and saved us. And as the psalmist says, that indeed it is the Lord who is on our side. We've made it to Psalm 124, so that is our text for this evening. I'm going to read that for us. I would ask if you're able, please stand for God's word as it is read. Here's what God's Word says. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Please be seated. It's typical to hear stories from time to time of people who almost found themselves in a lot of money or maybe some kind of job or maybe an opportunity to meet somebody that they really care for, maybe a celebrity, maybe something of that nature. But the story normally goes that they sell their land for a quick buck and then realize afterwards that it actually was some kind of great conservation land that that could have gotten them tons of money from the government. Or maybe there was a whole bunch of oil underneath the land and they could have been millionaires when really they only made a couple thousand dollars off of the sale. In these instances, you normally hear the mantra of our age as shoulda, coulda, woulda, right? The idea that I almost had something great, what could have been, But actually, I fell short of that. Well, our text this evening is somewhat similar to that, but it's a bit different because it comes at it from a different angle. 
Because when we normally feel this way and when we normally think those kind of thoughts about what could have been, we think about some way that we could have had this great advantage or this great gift or this great upper hand, but yet we fell short and our life is all the worse for it. It's an idea of regret. What's the exact opposite in our text this evening? Our text this evening is a story about how God's people are not the people who are better, but instead the people who have received mercy, the people who have been beneficiaries of this great mercy, this great rescue of God, our help. Otherwise, these people would have been found in opposition to him. And so there's an us and them dynamic in this psalm that I really want you to key in on as we work our way through it. What David does in this psalm is he presents what would have been true about us, but what is not true about us because of God. So instead of a regret, shoulda, coulda, woulda, it's actually a meditation on the grace of God and how good he has been to us. So I want you to see that as we work our way through. So we're going to start with verse 1. Verse 1 is an incredible reminder to us of where our help comes from. I'm going to read this verse again as we work our way. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. There's this constant reminder in the Christian life that we have come so close to disaster. We have come to the very edge of destruction, and God has stepped in and rescued us. You see this same refrain all the way through the Bible. Think about it. You have Adam and Eve. If it had not been the Lord who was on their side, they would have perished in the garden. You think of Noah. If it had not been for the Lord who was on his side, he would have perished in the flood. Moses, if it had not been the Lord who was on his side, they would have perished in Egypt. Or think about Sodom. If it had not been the Lord who was on his side, he would have perished along with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's interesting to follow this thread from Genesis all the way through Revelation and even continuing in our own lives because this motif of what would have been but is no longer the case for us is that constant reminder that we should have right at the forefront of our minds. David does this in several different ways, but one of the ways that he does it is he introduces this idea of repetition. You can really look no further than the first and second verse of this psalm because really what he does is he just repeats himself, right? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. He does this three separate times in this psalm, the first one of which is right there in verses 1 and 2. Now, he does this for a couple of reasons. The first one is just because we let things kind of go in one ear and out the other, or we let things fly over the top of our heads. It's as if he says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, I don't know if you heard me. Let me say that one more time. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Again, he does this three separate times in this psalm, and I think it's really, really important for us 
to pay attention when he gives those signals. Pay attention to this idea. Pay attention to this truth. You don't want this to slip away from memory. You must meditate on this. That's what he wants us to do as we look at these. As we work our way through this psalm, I also want to call your attention to one thing as we look again at that refrain, that repetition. Let Israel now say, verse 2, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, that there's an interesting concept of translation. Now, there's nothing technical really to explain, but it's fascinating when you look at the modern translations. So if you were to just go online and go to Bible Hub or Bible Gateway or something like that, where you can just see virtually every, every English translation of the Bible, they all read just about the same. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. You see that almost word for word exact in every single one of them. But then you go to more of the Old English writers, or even before that, you go to writers in the Reformation, such as John Calvin, the people who really knew Greek and Hebrew. And Calvin, for one, makes a point here that while it's okay to translate it, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, maybe even a better way to translate it is, but for the Lord who was on our side. That's an interesting way to really get at this psalm, because on the one hand, we could meditate on this as what would have been if the Lord was not on our side, or what is since the Lord is on our side. I think that's really capturing the language of what Calvin's saying, but for the Lord who was on our side. You think about another verse that really explains the grace of God in the same way, right? Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. You could really finish that by including the language of the psalm, but God who was on our side. It's the same idea, the same idea of the fact that we would have perished in our sins if it had not been for the Lord. But for the Lord who is on our side, that is no longer the case for us. So it brings up an interesting question. The Song of Ascents are ascribed to David. You will, of course, in our day of criticism and higher skepticism in, in the Bible, you always have people who say, the Bible says David, but it's actually not David, those kind of ideas. I don't think there's any reason for us to think that it wasn't David who wrote this, but it does pose an interesting question when we try to understand the background of this psalm. What was the context of it? What's the time frame? What's the moment in the life of David which is being referred to here in this psalm. I mean, you should really ask the question, when exactly was David almost swallowed up by a flood and swept away? It almost sounds like it's a a bit of a, a grab to really say that this could be attributed to David. Well, maybe the answer is, for David, there's nothing in particular that he's referring to. In other words, there's no specific event that he really has in mind as he pins this psalm. Here's another thing to consider, verses 3 and 4. Then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. When we get to this passage here, you can see that second repetition, right? That first one, if it had not been for the Lord, let me say it again, if it had not been for the Lord, and then you see it here. 
Verse 4, then the flood would have swept us away. Verse 5 repeats, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Again, this reminder to us, you need to understand what would have been true about you. Now, it's really interesting here that David, of all the analogies, of all the language, of all the things he could really cite for us to consider in our Christian lives, that he chooses to use that example of waters, of flood. I mean, no doubt this brings to mind the Exodus, right? You have two groups in the Exodus account, in the waters, if you want to put it that way. One of them finds their way safely across from one side to another. The other group perishes in the waters. One group receives grace. The other group receives justice. But both groups are equally guilty. Both groups are equally deserving of having the waters cover them to perish in the waters. Now, that's an interesting way to really think about the Exodus because, after all, isn't the Exodus all about good versus evil? The good Israelites and the bad Egyptians? Well, not necessarily. Instead, the story of the Exodus is about God choosing to have mercy on a people. Out of the midst of the whole earth, God chose Israel. And he even tells them as they're in the wilderness, it's not because of your greatness, it's because of the wickedness of all these other nations. I've chosen you, I've raised you up as a testimony against all the other nations to show them their guilt, to show them why they are indeed worthy of the judgment coming upon them. After all, doesn't Israel have to have, as as Josh mentioned this morning in the idea of the Passover, that blood on the doorpost. If that hadn't been the case, all of Israel would have perished that night alongside the Egyptians. But it is that God has chosen to rescue from the flood, from the raging waters. You think about this idea that God does this, and as soon as Israel stops dwelling on this, meditating upon this grace, No sooner than they pass through the waters do they start thinking about all the different ways they can sin against God. I mean, the irony, Moses goes up to the mountain to speak with the Lord to find out how his people are to live. And they say, while we're waiting for you to tell us how we're supposed to live, we're going to be down here sinning against you until we find out what way we're supposed to live. I mean, it's a great irony, but it speaks to the human heart. It speaks to the human condition. We have a a hymn. That speaks of this. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This divided interest, this issue of the heart, this wrestling that we deal with, we must bring our minds back to the fact that God has rescued us. God wants us to remember this about ourselves. But as true as it is that David may indeed have the passage in Exodus in mind, As he writes this, it's even more fascinating to think about what he could be referring to as he speaks of, verses 3 through 5, this flood, this torrent, the raging waters. When we have in our Bibles an actual passage called the flood, it's about water, right? You know the passage, it's in every kid's book that you see that's 
made from some kind of Bible publisher or some kind of Christian company. You have Moses, you have a giraffe next to him. He's got his arm around the giraffe. They're waving at the reader, right? It's this very like cute, friendly picture. But the reality of the flood account is as Noah and his family are on the ark, you have the rest of mankind underneath the face of the waters. Even all the animals that aren't in the ark hitting against the side of the ark, perishing under the waters, this this very morbid image of the condition of humanity, but also an image of God's grace as there are indeed a remnant on that ark. Imagine as the sky opens up, as it were, as the bottom falls out, as the whole face of the earth is covered in these raging waters, this flood that Noah's there with his family, looking at his wife, looking at his sons and their wives, and he says to them, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, we would have perished in these waters, and the flood would have swept us away. This meditation of the fact that God has cared and saved and rescued his people should cause us to pause. Because though we haven't been in a literal ark, though we haven't been rescued from this raging waters that have flooded all of Jacksonville, even though some days it seems like the rain's never going to stop, we start to get concerned when we can't see from one traffic light to the next if we find ourselves caught in the middle of it trying to drive home or whatever the case may be. But it always comes to an end. It always stops. But imagine if it didn't stop. Imagine if we were swept away by it. Well, we could say the same thing about our rebellion against God. The psalm opens up by saying that the Lord is on our side. You think about the imagery in the book of Joshua. Joshua is getting ready to finish out everything that the Lord has commissioned him to do after the death of Moses. And he comes across the commander of the Lord's army and he asks him, whose side are you on? And his answer is, no. (laughs) Are you on our side or their side? His answer is, no. I'm on the Lord's side. It is not that God has decided to just join our team. It is that he has decided to bring us into his side. He has decided to bring us into his family. And when that happens, the Lord is indeed on our side. But if that had not been the case, we would also have perished. We would also have been swept away. Our appetite for sin, our desire for the things of this world instead of the things of God would have grown stronger and stronger and stronger. Sure, you may wrestle with it. We're not in glory yet. But the truth is you're wrestling with it. The truth is that you have the struggle. You have the desire to do what is right. And we have the Holy Spirit to help us have the ability to carry it out. But since that is true for us, we must wait and pause. We must consider, we must reflect what would have been true of us characteristically were the Lord not on our side. We would have been just like Egypt. We would have been just like all those who weren't on the ark. We would have been just like Adam and Eve if the Lord had not stepped in. And now as we look at verses 6 and 7, 
We've considered what would have been true about us characteristically, and now David wants us to consider what would have been true about us circumstantially. Verse 6 says, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. There's that third repetition, the idea of escaping like a bird. He repeats himself in verse 7. Again, he wants to remind us this idea of escape. And truly, this, this hits home more for David because when we think about his circumstances, when we think about the circumstances of Israel as a nation, you can really just almost open your Bible at random, put your finger down, and you can find some kind of conflict that Israel is in the middle of. Remember, you, you have the first reality that the promised land, you know, the land they're promised to receive, the land they're promised to get to, is very awkwardly already full of people. It's, it's not this just lush, beautiful land with a rainbow and milk and honey and just open for them to start building their houses. There's, remember, there's actually nations there already. There's actually a society there already. And Israel has the very awkward but important responsibility of being God's hand of judgment and actually putting an end to all those nations. And as much as the nations understood who the Lord was by the life of Israel, you can imagine that as all of this was happening, as all the news of Israel's conquest over this land and this land was happening, that the nations weren't very excited about Israel as a nation. You can imagine their animosity, their loathing, their scoffing, their desire to put an end to this nation who's coming in and, and cleaning house. And even after this, even after they're settled in their land, you have this constant threat coming upon them from the outside in. You have all of these nations trying to put an end to them, even as they're dwelling as God's people, right? You have the Amorites, you have the Egyptians, you have the Assyrians, you have the Babylonians, this constant wrestling all the way through the Old Testament. Or you think about David's life. David had a pretty rough life as well. It's fascinating to even think how he had time to write as much as he did. I mean, men, you know, you, you may not like the family that you've been married into, but I would try to make a very safe bet that you probably haven't been, um, you haven't, probably haven't found yourself being uh, attempted to be murdered by your father-in-law. Well, that was the case for David. David didn't just have a not-so-good relationship with his father-in-law. He was actually hunted down. Remember, he had to flee. He had to run away and hide in caves. And after that whole conflict was over and done with, then here comes his son, who also tries to kill him. Perhaps David actually wrote this psalm as a reflection of the Lord rescuing him from Saul. Or maybe he wrote this psalm as a reflection of the Lord rescuing him from Absalom. But either way, David has in mind a life that has been marked by constant conflict, but constant rescue. And then he writes a psalm about it. He writes several psalms about it. But as is the case with Israel and David and even ourselves, we don't only face threats from external sources from external circumstances. We also wrestle against principalities, right? We have a roaring lion 
who seeks to devour us. The language that Jesus spoke to Peter is the devil is somebody that wanted to sift him like wheat. That's not a very pleasant analogy. But that is the intent, that is the purpose of the evil one, of our enemy. We have an accuser who wants to do this for us. And our accuser is cunning. You can't always anticipate what angle he's coming from. He seeks to pit our circumstances. He seeks to pit our weaknesses against us. For Israel, there was the temptation of the golden idols. There was the temptation of syncretism, of a little bit of Yahweh and a little bit of all of these other gods and all of these other things that the nations around them were participating in. You think about David, his weakness, his struggle was the lust of his eyes, his downfall, what really launched him into a life almost marked by constant violence and turmoil in his own family because he found himself giving in to temptation. These are those principalities, and these are those struggles with the flesh, what Luther called the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the things that we see God's people wrestle with, and it is the same for us. What is it that you are wrestling with? What is it that the evil one seeks to pit against you to distract you from the fact that you have been rescued, that your fate is not like the Egyptians, is not like the rest of the world who is swept away by the flood? What is it that could be your downfall that you struggle with? The Puritan John Owen called these temptations what our enemy seeks to destroy us with, and he calls them almost as tributaries. They might seem almost random because they're outlying temptations, but tributaries work their way to the river, which John Owen calls the heart. In other words, the enemy seeks to find whatever artery he can, even if it's a small one, because it's going to get to the heart eventually and destroy us. Remember, our enemy is cunning. It's not always the obvious temptation that he chooses. Of all the things that David could have died and perished from, who would have thought that the thing that almost destroyed him was the fact that he went out on his roof on a nice afternoon to just hang out? But then there's the woman, and then there is the downfall of his life until the Lord steps in graciously yet again. These are things we must continue to meditate upon, friends, because this is our struggle. This is our consideration that the Lord has rescued us, but we do have real enemies. We do indeed experience temptation. We do have struggles. We have weaknesses. And these are things we must consider again and again. The psalm comes to a wonderful close that frankly, could almost be just kind of glossed over and forgotten if we're not careful. Verse 8 says this, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And that's almost a bookend to verse 1. Some of the same language that we have the Lord who is on our side, verse 1, and then verse 8 We have the Lord who is our helper. But it's interesting the way that David depicts the Lord and demonstrates him to us. 
Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time reading the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms. Even if you haven't, chances are you probably know what the first question of the Shorter Catechism is. What is the chief end of man? But do you know what the first question of the Larger Catechism is? It's almost the same, but there's a little bit of an addition. And it's one that's really important that we don't miss. It says, what is the chief and highest end of man? I wish I knew why they didn't just include those two words. Is it really that necessary to call it shorter by just eliminating two words? I don't know why exactly it is that they chose to um, abridge it in that way. But I think that idea that the chief and highest end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I think the reason that's so important for us in this psalm is because not only is it true that our highest responsibility is to glorify God and enjoy him forever because he's worthy of praise, but it's also the highest end that we could aspire to. It's not only the most important thing we could be doing, but it's the highest privilege that we could participate in. Our help is in the name of the Lord. How often do you meditate upon the fact that the Lord is your help? Not only that the Lord has saved you, a one-and-done reality, if we're saved, we're saved, but also that the Lord continues to help. Not only that the Lord was there for you back when you were outside of Christ, but that the Lord continues to dwell with you as you are in Christ. How often do you meditate on this? We do have an accuser. We do have one that wants to destroy us, but we also have a lamb who's been slain on our behalf. We've been hearing that the last several weeks in the Gospel of John. And we overcome our accuser. We conquer him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, says the book of Revelation. And that idea is that we would testify to the fact of who God is. That's exactly what this psalm is doing. The word of the testimony of who God is. This psalm testifies, especially in those repetitions, that idea of testifying who the Lord is and what he has done who we were, and who we are now. This constant idea of remembering who God is because we indeed are prone to wonder. That's what our hymn was about. How is it that God has brought us to the feast? How is it that God has given us a heart to desire him while there are those outside refusing to come in? And we glorify the grace of God because of what he has done for us. But don't miss, friends, that this psalm does not just talk about an abstract God. This psalm talks about the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the name that describes him as a God who is near, a God who communes with us, a God who dwells with us forever and ever. This must cause us to reflect on our adoption. This must cause us 
to celebrate not only God's mercy to save us, but his mercy to make us his own. God has brought us into the fold. He is not just God to us, but he is the Lord. He is God with us. And we must reflect on this because that really speaks to who we are. It's not enough for us to just live in the past. It's not enough to just call ourselves wretches. One of the greatest hymns of all time in the English language is Amazing Wretch. Isn't it? Well, no, it's Amazing Grace. We glorify God in His grace. We don't live in the reality that I'm a wretch, I'm a wretch, I'm a wretch, because if you do, you downplay what the Lord has done for you and in you. But of course, as John Newton writes that, he does go to great lengths to mention the fact that I was a wretch, but I've been saved. So we want to walk a fine balance here. We don't just want to live in the past and downplay what God has done in us, but we also don't want to act as if we are already in glory and no longer sin, no longer struggle. This psalm represents a wonderful balance for us, not only meditating on what was true of us or what would be true of us, but also the grace of what is true of us now, which should cause us great hope and comfort. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Just as all the promises of God are ours in Christ Jesus, yes and amen, Second Corinthians, the history of the saints becomes our history as we've been brought into the fold. That's why it really doesn't matter if David actually faced the same kind of threat of a flood of water as he mentions here in the psalm for him to have actually written it. Now, what I'm not doing is going the liberal theology route and saying it doesn't really matter if the resurrection happened, right? I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is the history of God's people, what was true, what actually happened, what is real, is our history. It is what we can reflect on. It is what we can celebrate and glorify God in. We can actually say God has rescued us from the flood. God's rescued us from Egypt. And indeed, he will continue to rescue us. And we're saying us because he's adopted us into his family. It is the family of God to which we bear witness to, to which we belong. But how is it that God is our help today in the year 2020, which is one of the strangest years that you could think of? Maybe that's not true. Maybe it's just that information comes out so fast and so immediate that we just hear about almost everything. News is certainly selective if every News channel and news website reported on every single story there is. Nobody could ever read it. Our minds would be just overload and we wouldn't even be able to handle it, right? I mean, so we could say that this year has been crazy, but I'm sure that if technology and communication was at the level it is today, back 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, you could say that the year 2020 has happened again and again and again to the level of absurdity to which it is as we experience it today. But how is it that God is our help? Well, David tells us. 
David appeals to the strongest assurance that we could possibly have. The Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, there's nothing more basic than this appeal. But there's also nothing more significant than this appeal. This appeal speaks to us about the otherness of God. You have two categories. You have the creator, and then you have creation. Or you could say you have God, and then you have everything else. Anything that had a beginning is temporal, and by default is part of creation. Has a beginning. It wasn't always. There was a time when it was not. But that can't be said about God. God is the one who made heaven and earth. The Lord is the one who does not have a beginning. The Lord is the one who never was not. It is he who David tells us to set our minds upon and set our sight towards as a great comfort. Our help is not, in the year 2020, in a mask. Our help is not in an earthly friend that's really close to us, we have a great relationship, because they had a beginning. There will be a time when they're no longer here on this earth. Our help is not the best financial strategy that we've come up with to get ourselves out of this crisis which we are in right now. Our help is not in the sport league that you're longing to see again because it's forsaking you right now. Our help is not in our happy place, our favorite food, our favorite drink, because all of these things are in the category of creation. All of these things are temporal. None of these things have the power of being in and of themselves. None of these things spoke, and then it was. All of these things were created by God and are part of the created order, but our help is in the Lord, who is not part of the created order, but instead is the creator. Imagine the one who spoke and all things came into existence. It's not as if he had a trowel and a dump truck and all of this dirt and soil and brick and everything to work with. It's not like playing a game of Minecraft or Zoo Tycoon or something like that where you have all your tools ready and then you just get to work. That's not the kind of creator we're talking about. We're talking about a creator who made everything out of nothing by the sheer power of his word, who indeed this very day holds the very earth and heavens together by the power of his word. That is the one who is our helper. That is the one who is on our side. It was said about the French Protestants in the 18th century that they always began their public worship services with the last verse of this psalm. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
And one commentator makes the note that there is no thought more encouraging and comfortable than this. And friends, if it is true that the one who created all things, who answers to no one, who does not have to ask permission from anyone to be God, if it is the very one who created all things and upholds them even to this day, who has chosen to be on our side and make us his own, what greater assurance could we possibly ask for? Let's pray. Friends, thanks so much for listening. What great comfort it is to consider the fact that the Lord of the universe is on our side and has our best interests in mind as we live our Christian lives to his glory. I hope you've been encouraged by this episode. I do want to give a special shout out to my patrons over at Patreon because it is their generous support that helps pay for all the expenses that it takes to throw all of this together for you, for your listening enjoyment. If you've been impacted by this podcast, if you've been encouraged, if you've been helped, I do appreciate your continued listening support. And I also want to invite you to consider some financial support to this podcast. When you do support financially, you also gain access to bonus content as well as exclusives for those who are part of the Patreon family. So if you're interested in that, please head over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading where you can choose your support tier. I'd be especially grateful for that. But I'm always grateful for any amount of support, prayers, and especially your listening support, because if you're not listening, then why am I doing this show? (laughs) Well, take care, friends. This is Kevin with the Better Bible Reading Podcast.